This week on Writers Inc. I mean, virtually all of my first draft writing by dictating. I'll go out for a walk with a digital recorder. And I just find that speaking my words instead of typing them is just a more natural thing for me to be telling stories. Just like, you know, the storyteller around the campfire. That's what I feel like. I'm verbally telling my stories. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's In. All right, we're all back, fresh off the Career Author Summit in Nashville. Zach, you're still there. Are there any people hanging around still from the summit? Not anymore. It's, <laughs> it seems like people just left, though, because there were a, uh, a few people um, hanging around that I got to spend some time with. Uh, shout out to Chris Kane, who parked her van in my yard for a couple of days. <laughs> and, uh, and also to JP, who I ended up uh, helping my a friend of mine sell their van to JP. So, <laughs> so I had a very van life week, I guess, while they were here. So. Did you get an affiliate commission on that sale? Uh, I, you know, I, I'm still giving my friend Heather crap about giving me a commission for that. So, but she does, uh, she does watch Haley a lot for me. So I guess that's kind of my, uh, that's, that's my, and they have, her husband is a mechanic who fixes my car a lot and doesn't charge me a ton. So I don't think I'll be complaining for a commission. I'm just glad that they really wanted to sell this. This van meant a lot to them and they wanted to sell it to someone who would take care of it, not to someone who's going to like turn into a work truck. I mean, this is like a 97, like big conversion van. It only had 79,000 miles on it. <laughs> I mean, and, and they gave JP uh, uh, a really, really good deal too. Nice. So, uh, yeah. So anyways, so that was fun to make that connection. Um, and uh, I also, uh, I went to a concert Thursday night, which was fun. Um, I went and saw one of our author buddies who I don't know if he wants to be outed as a musician as well. So I don't know if I should say who it was, but uh, that was fun. First time I've been to a concert in about 18 months. So that was, that was interesting. So. All right. So I've got questions there because my wife and I have tickets for Andrew McMahon in Pittsburgh. Um, you know, and Andrew's actually coming up, I think on the podcast in the next couple of weeks or so. Um, but we're, we were planning on flying into Pittsburgh, going to this concert. I know they're requiring like the attendees to be vaccinated, I, I think at the door. I, so I'm curious, like, did they check any of that stuff for the concert you went to Were people masked or not masked or how, how did that all play out? Uh, it was outside. So a lot oh. of people were not masked. I would say most people weren't, um, they did require vaccine card, um, so I had to show them a or a negative test. So I had to show them a picture at the door. Um, I will say, though, um, there was a big festival in Alabama this weekend called Furnace Fest. I think they were requiring a vaccination card or negative test for that as well. And I've already heard reports of dozens of people getting COVID. So <laughs> I don't know if it really matters. I, I could be wrong, though, about I don't know for sure if they are requiring it down there or not. 
Um, but I know for sure there were COVID cases going around. So oh, we're, we're both vaccinated, but you know, you can probably buy those cards like 500, you know, for $12 on eBay. Like they're, they're not exactly difficult to, to fake, but we were just curious if it's even worth, you know, cause hopping on a plane, going to Pittsburgh, like this, this was kind of an ordeal, but this is my wife's like favorite band. So like, you know, we, we were going to do it and we haven't been to a concert in forever because of all this stuff. So it just seemed like a lot of fun, but, and we're trying to weigh those, those things and just determine whether we, we still want to go. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's just one of those things you're just going to have to weigh on your own and make your own personal choice. I mean, I have tickets to a couple different indoor concerts coming up. I have one in November uh, that I'm going to, and then there's another one in January, a, co- a comedy show. Um, so uh, I'm planning on going. I'm, I, you know, I'm vaccinated, and uh, if, if I get it, I'm I'm going to take. Uh, I'm going to hope the vaccine works the way it's supposed to, and I just won't get as sick. So, <laughs> <laughs> If not, we'll be taking applications to fill Zach's spot next week. On <laughs> right. I, I guess so. Now that you've met me, you don't like me. So, you know. I'm still trying to get over the fact that you're shorter than, than Jay. On video, you look like you would be taller. I, I, know I, I don't know why. You said to me, but... you, you walk in that room and you go, dude, I thought you were like 6'5". Yeah. And I was like, good to meet uh, you. I, I'm not going to uh, say on the air what I said to you, but <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> it may have been I, a four-letter word. I, I, I'll I'll say it. I mean, I, I saw you. I was ready to hand you a lunch po- lunchbox and put you on the school bus and send you off to fifth grade. Like you're like all of four feet tall. Yeah. All, <laughs> all right. I'm, maybe I'm a little a, bit. More. No, I'm a vertically challenged and horizontally gifted. Gimli. <laughs> Good way to put yeah. it. <laughs> So publisher stuff. Um, I, I was listening to Six Figure Author the other day, and they had the creator of Publishers Rocket on, um, and his name escapes me. And I know Dave I've, I've, Chesson. Dave Chesson. That's yeah, he, it. He's, he lives really close to me. So yeah, you guys use Publishers Rocket, right? Well, you don't I really do. run ads. I, so. I, I I do. Yeah, I I, I love Publisher Rocket. Yeah, it, it got me thinking because I, I use it, you know, a ton for for ads, you know, for Amazon ads in particular, um, but not necessarily for keywords for my books. And like, it, it got me thinking about this. Like, when you go on Amazon looking for a book, like, have you ever gone on looking specifically, you know, like based on categories? Like, have you gone in there and just like typed in like fantasy this or you know some, something? Ever. Yeah, like I, sometimes, I don't think... but I mostly will type in stuff at the search box, which is what most people, I believe, do. Is the data says. But you actually type in, you know, what would be construed, I guess, as keywords, or do you go? Because I, when I go to Amazon to buy a book, I usually know, you know, what book I'm trying to find or what author I'm, I'm chasing down. So I've, I've never gone in there like totally blind and, you know, said I, I think I'd like a book about bank robberies and, you know, like drill I've down done, that way. I've done that. Yeah, okay. I've done that a lot. I'll go look up, you know, I type in post-apocalyptic or or something or zombie books or something like that, um, and and I think there's a. From what I've heard, and I think Dave has a lot of this data, um, a lot of people do that type of thing. I mean, there's definitely people who go look specifically for an author or whatever, but a lot of people will go start and they'll just start searching for, you know, a certain type of book or a setting or something like that as well. Yeah, it was a cool interview. It definitely got me thinking about that. Um, one of the other things that he brought up is that apparently they've got data now to, to back up that there's some type of cliff after publication date. Um, you know, and anybody who's put out a book, you, you see it in your sales, you know, two, three weeks out, four weeks out or whatever, you know, you start dropping in those rankings and things just like start to change. Um, and it doesn't feel very organic. It, it, it feels literally like a cliff. Um, and apparently he, found, he has the data to back up that there is something going on there from an algorithm standpoint that, that kind of dials everything back. 
Um, so, so that was interesting. Um, I do think Amazon factors in like your overall rank over time, um, on books, you know, like as an example, like fourth monkey is still like in the top 10,000 on Amazon and it's been out for like five or six years. Um, and it's routinely between like number 300 and, you know, like 9,000, 10,000, like in that range. So it's, it, it's holding on there. Um, so I think, you know, that kind of thing is factored in too, but it, it's cool to hear. I, I love data. Like, and it's really cool that he's out there analyzing. I, I'd love to get access to those spreadsheets. Yeah, he's got he's got more. I mean, the data the data analysis he's doing with Amazon. I mean, he he has it's amazing. I actually went to a small meeting with him with like there was like ten other people there at a Barnes and Noble, and just hearing him talk and some of the data and stuff that he gets. And I mean, he's done all these experiments with uh, uh, the book descriptions and the way Amazon crawls those for keywords. And uh, you know, he he talks about using every single character possible in your keywords. I think it's like 50 characters or something, or 50 words. I can't remember. It's either 50 words or it can't be 50 characters. It's got to be more than that. But he's like, use as much of that as you can. It's pretty fascinating that he's got a lot of data. And I use, I use the the keyword tools is the main thing I use for Publisher Rocket. And it's, I, I do feel it has made a, it has made a difference in my sales. Yeah. So anybody listening, if, if if you haven't checked it out, just um check out the the Six Figure Author podcast. Uh, that that particular episode in particular, I really liked. Cool. Uh, related. I got some publishing stuff here. Uh, we want to give a shout out to our friends Joanna Penn and Mark Leslie Lefebvre, who have a new book out called The Relaxed Author. So we'll have a link in the show notes. Make sure you pick that up. Uh, those are two stalwarts uh, in the industry and good friends and good people. So make sure you go grab that book. Also, a little teaser here. Uh, I'll have, also have a link in the show notes. As you're listening to this, I put up a blog post yesterday uh, sort of introducing an NFT experiment I'm doing with my author community. Um, it's, it's pretty interesting. Uh, we're at the very beginning. We're, we're going to be taking um, a royalty share approach, uh, sort of looking at NFTs as a way to give readers a share of profits, which is a different model, not something you see in uh, publishing, at least I haven't seen it and something that uh, is happening more in the music industry. So I'll have a link to that in the show notes, and there'll be more coming on it at a later time. I'm an investor, so I'm watching. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's get on, uh, let's get on to our, uh, our sponsor here, and then we'll get into the interview. As always, we want to thank our wonderful sponsors, Kobo Writing Life. They empower you, the author, to take your self-publishing career into your own hands. Remember, on Kobo, you get promo opportunities. You get to set your own pricing in all the different markets of the world, and you don't have to be exclusive. So if you want more information on how you can do that, go to KoboWritingLife.com. We also want to give a nice shout-out to new patron, Susie Geisler. Welcome, Susie. Uh, always great to have patrons join us. And if you would like to become a patron of the show and submit a question for the monthly Q&A episode, you can do that at patreon.com slash writersincpodcast. And that brings us to our guest for the week, J.D., all right, this one's going to be fun. This is somebody I've been reading for, God, Jesus, as long as I can remember. Um, and a lot of tie-in novels. I think that I first discovered him, and it's Kevin J. Anderson, by the way, because I probably should have thrown his name out there at the beginning. <laughs> um, I, I think the first one I actually picked up was a Star Wars tie-in that he did. Um, and then I probably read about 200 more that he did after that because this guy writes like a, a machine. Um, and then he then he was in the um, the X-Files universe, and, and you know I devoured those too, and just an extremely pro prolific author um, and very talented Um and very good with dialogue. I mean, it, it just as a writer, like if you want to, you know, just check out somebody who's very good with dialogue. He, he's he's one of the the best out there. Um, but I'm I'm really excited for this one. Here he is, Kevin J. Anderson. 
who is the biggest Rush fan, you or Mark Lefebvre? Boy, that's a tough question. But of course, <laughs> he's he's taller. But I think I'm I'm the bigger Rush fan if we're doing this. But you know, it's not a competition. You can <laughs> uh, you can both share in your love for greatest lyrics, greatest music, greatest drummer ever. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm poking fun at Mark with that, but in all seriousness, like you know, you've had uh, you've had some some great uh, collaborations uh, with Neil Peart and um, a huge fan of the band, as so many of us in the rock world are. Uh, can you talk a little bit about sort of your your fondest memory of of that work or a couple of those memories? Well, I. My first novel, which came out in 1988, called Resurrection Inc., was inspired by Grace Under Pressure. And, you know, I was the nerdy high school kid who listened to Rush all the time because I couldn't get dates and I wanted to listen to like 2112 and Xanadu and Cygnus X1. And and uh, so I was writing stories inspired by their music. And uh, by the time I was 25 or so, I'd written the whole novel that was kind of I mean, it wasn't a novel of Grace Under Pressure the way my Clockwork Angels novel is a direct novel of the album. Um, but it was very much inspired by it. And I just put in the dedication of this book that it was inspired by Grace Under Pressure. And I thank Neil Getty and Alex. And I mailed off copies to Mercury Records. And about a year later, Neil wrote me a letter back. And I got this like letter from N. Peart with a Canadian stamp on the, on the front of it. And and uh, one of one of my very favorite days, I think. And and so he and I wrote a short story, kind of a creepy uh, dark fantasy thing called Drum Beats that we published in an anthology and we've reprinted it a couple of times. And I just did it as a, uh, after Neil died in ja last uh, January, 2020, um, I did a beautiful illustrated edition with a new cover painting by Steve Otis and, and interior illustrations and a forward, a new forward that I wrote. And we included the original afterward that Neil had written for our ebook release of it. Uh, and that just came out in a beautiful signed numbered edition that sold out immediately, of course. So that's been gone for a while, but uh, we, we are, making it available as a as a wide trade release uh in september 2020 is when that that uh is out and you know just neil working with me and, and we just every time we we see like um what did we just watch we watched a back like almost famous like the backstage concert stuff and we watch this and it just gets me like heavy in my heart because of so many times that that uh, I was backstage and just hanging out with Neil, getting ready for shows and stuff. But of course my favorite one was when uh, Neil was doing their, what would be their last album, Clockwork Angels. And he came to me and was asking all kinds of questions about steampunk fantasy adventures. Cause I had written a bunch of them and he just wanted to know all the tropes and all these things for his story. And, and they were doing this giant concept album with the plot line all the way through it. And we were, my wife and I were having lunch with him at a diner in Santa Monica, and he was just so excited about Clockwork Angels. And he said it was going to be a, not just an album, but it would be a Broadway musical and Ice Follies and a novel and everything else. And and I'm like, I'm a Rush fan. So I went, ooh, cool, Ice Follies. And and uh, my wife was listening a little more closely, and she said, but but a novel? Neil, what are you talking about a novel? Who's going to write the novel? And he says, well, Kevin is, of course. And then he goes on. And so that was 
that was probably my favorite memory. So we, we have Clockwork Angels, the novel, and then we did a sequel that we think is even better called Clockwork Lives. And then we did graphic novel adaptations of both of those. And um, so that was so my favorite work of all the stuff I've done. That's beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, I, I'm sure, uh, I, I, I'm not sure, but I'm going to guess and say that when you put that dedication in that book, you probably didn't expect uh, a personal letter a year later from the band's most reclusive or private member. Uh, what, what was, I mean, what was that moment like for you? Well, I've always kind of had a, a life philosophy of, you know, you thank people that inspire you. And um, I wasn't expecting anything back, but I kind of wanted somebody in the band to know that their music had inspired me. So I just sent off the, off the books. I never seriously expected to get a response because I, I've often done this sending things out to, you know, an actor I admire or maybe a political figure or something and nobody ever answers. So you just don't expect it. Uh, but that, that one letter and at the, at the very end of the letter, and I include part of it in the, drum beats introduction that I just published. Uh, it's Neil just writes, and if you would, if you would like to keep corresponding with me, I'd be open to doing that or something. And I just went, yeah, that's, that's a done deal right there. Yes, so can't we, pass that up. we were friends for over 30 years before he passed. Yeah. That's fantastic. Uh, but of course, Rush is, is not the only area where you've explored and dabbled in other places. I mean, you have a, a long distinguished career in, in publishing in different mediums and, and, and different ways. Can you maybe talk a little bit about uh, some, of, some of those, you know, like the Star Wars universe or any of those other uh, intellectual uh, IP worlds that you've helped create? Well, see, one of the things when I was just a kid wanting to be a writer, I thought that what you did was you wrote a novel and you got paid enough money to live on and then you wrote another novel. And and for some people that's the case. And and actually for me, that was the case for quite a while, but I would write like Resurrection Inc. Um, was was uh, critically acclaimed. It got great reviews and of course didn't sell enough to pay any of my bills. So I had to write another book and another book. And, and I just on the basis of my uh, my original science fiction and fantasy Lucasfilm noticed it and they approached me to ask if I would write Star Wars books. Now that wasn't something I tried to do. It was sort of like a, uh, like a streak of lightning, just something just came out of the blue. And so I started writing Star Wars books and then Chris Carter, the guy who created the X-Files read my Star Wars books and then he liked them. And so he asked me if I'd write X-Files books and, and I did some movie novelizations of uh, some some kind of good and some kind of bad movies, but you don't really know that because you can't read the script first. They send you the script and then you write the novel. Um, and then I, let's see, I got to get my Dune by Frank Herbert was always my favorite science fiction novel ever. And I read it over and over again and I read all of Frank's sequels, but when Frank passed away in 19, uh, I think 86, um, quote, I, I didn't look it up ahead of time. So I think it was like 1986. Um, he left his story just on a cliffhanger. And I waited about 10 years for his son, Brian, who was also an accomplished science fiction writer. Uh, I waited for him to wrap up the story so I could see how it was going to end. And, and when that just never happened, I wrote him a letter, just kind of a surprise that I didn't know him. I'd never met him. And I just told him how much I loved Dune and how much I'd read all of his, uh, his father's other works. And, 
asked if he was going to work on the final book or if not, could we maybe work together on it? And, and we got together and just really hit it off. We became very close friends. And, and again, we've written a couple of million words together. It's uh, where our, uh, again, I, my wife always teases me because I'm never good at numbers, but I think we're at our 15th Dune novel now. The, the Duke of Caladan is the newest one, uh, October 2020 uh, is the publication date on that. And we've got another one we're about to start here and we're doing graphic novels and comics. And, you know, it, it all goes back to loving what you're doing. And I love Dune and I love Star Wars and, and I love Rush and, and um, you know, and I see all these writers that just have their tearing their hair out and they have writer's block and they hate writing. I go, dude, then go get a different job. I love writing. I love <laughs> right. telling stories. I love doing this. And um, so there you go. I don't know if uh, I, I feel like you you channel some of the same energy that the late, great Ray Bradbury did. Can, can you talk about what you learned from him as both a writer and as, just as a person? Oh, what's funny is, is I, when I was in high school, I just fell headfirst into all of Ray Bradbury's stuff. I read all of those short story collections and they just, I can right off the top of my head, just remember the foghorn and the sound of thunder and the fruit at the bottom of the bowl and the golden apples of the sun. And each one of these stories had as much impact on me as like a novel did. And I just read them and read them and read them. And I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin. And of course, Ray Bradbury grew up in a small town in Illinois. So a lot of the stuff he was writing about, I think it was Greentown, Illinois, if I remember right. Um, a lot of the stuff he was writing about was very much like um, what, what I was living. And I read the Martian Chronicles and Fahrenheit 451. And, and I really fell in love with something wicked this way comes. Oh, and me too. Uh, yeah. Just loved all those things. But the funny thing is, is I read them all when I was like a, sophomore and junior in high school. So I, so I, and he's not a fast writer. So I, I read them all. I was all done. And then I went off to college and then I, I uh, published my first novel and kept published. I kept writing short stories and kept publishing all these short stories. And then my, my local library, this was kind of right when books on tape were starting to show up. And because I was commuting to work every day, I would always get the, the, they were on cassettes then you would put the cassette in your car player and just listen. And there was this collection of Ray Bradbury reading his own favorite short stories. And I went, that's cool. So I got them and I listened to them. And as I'm listening to all these Ray Bradbury short stories, I like my jaw is dropping because I went, Oh crap. That's where I stole that idea from. That's where I stole that. I, there were so many of my own stories that I had just, um, been greatly inspired by and it was all in the back of my mind i didn't remember any of those and the one and only time that i i met ray bradbury face to face he was pretty old then and he was uh in a wheelchair but he was having uh dinner at a at a i think it was the los angeles world science fiction convention or something and i just i was starry-eyed i came up and i introduced myself and and i said that i enjoyed his his fiction so much and i told Ray, Ray Bradbury to his face that I stole some of my very best ideas from you. And, and he laughed and, and uh, shook my hand. So that's my only experience with Ray Bradbury, but he was a big influence on me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you, um, you, you talked a little bit about audio and, and that's a, maybe a good segue into uh, something that you've become quite uh, facile at, which I, I think is impressive 
Can, can you talk about how you do a lot of your first drafting these days? And what I'm talking about is uh, in the mountains, in the desert. Uh, what, what, how do you do that? Well, I'm, I do, I mean, virtually all of my first draft writing by dictating. I'll go out for a walk with a digital recorder. And I just find that speaking my words instead of typing them is just a more natural thing for me to be telling stories. Just like, you know, the storyteller around the campfire. That's what I feel like. I'm verbally telling my stories, but I've trained myself how to do it uh, in a very smooth, clean way, just because I've practiced it so long. And I live in the mountains in Colorado. So I go hiking all the time and it's like, I'm in my office. I'm surrounded by waterfalls and tall mountain peaks and everything. So I just, it, it came about when, I mean, I would be typing, but I'd get kind of stuck and I'd go, well, how do I, how do I work out this plot problem? Or uh, this character feels flat and I don't know enough about the character. How do I develop the character a little bit more? So I would just go out for a walk and kind of mull things over in my head. And I, sometimes I'd take a little notepad with me and kind of try to scribble things down as fast as I could think of them. But as I developed more and more and more that way, I couldn't write them fast enough. I couldn't get all the details down. And, and I could have like this whole imaginary uh, argument between two characters in my head. And I have like 40 sentences, all beautiful dialogue. And then when I come back home and try to type them up, I wouldn't remember anything. So I finally started carrying a recorder with me and just using that for notes. And my notes process got to uh, more and more and more fleshed out so that it turned out to be almost a first draft. And then I decided, well, why not make it my first draft instead of retyping everything? So that's how it, it came about. And I, I wrote a book about it called On Being a Dictator, uh, which is all my different techniques on how to do it. I, I just think, especially in, in times of the pandemic, we, we at least in Colorado and in a lot of states, even when there was a lockdown, you were still allowed to go out and walk as long as you were on a someplace away from crowds of people. So I would still go out into my isolated national forest trails and all kinds of places and get lots of writing done. But one of the big techniques, uh, I, I kind of got fed up with, you know, I would be telling people how much it worked for me and so many people would get fired up and they'd go out and then they'd come back and say, oh man, I tried dictation for 47 seconds and it just didn't work for me. And it's a learned skill. It's something that you have to practice. And, you know, you can't, the first time you sat down at a keyboard, you didn't type a hundred words a minute. You didn't know where any of the letters were because whoever designed the keyboard did not arrange the letters in order. So they're all over the place. Well, dictation is the same thing. You, it, you have to learn how to do it. Your first time will be sort of like hunting and pecking on a typewriter and, and you just develop it. But I'm, I just love it as a brainstorming idea, as, as an exercise, go out and, and uh, dictate yourself. And speaking of exercise, it helps you get exercise instead of sitting with your butt in the chair all the time. Yeah. And, you know, given how, how long you've been doing it and, and uh, how long you've practiced it, can you give us a sense of when you, when those words that you've spoken hit the paper, what kind of shape are they in? How, how much work do you have to put into those that, that would sort of be above and beyond if you were typing it? Uh, very, very little more than if I were typing it, because my typing it would be a first draft too. Um, but see, the thing that helps from the creative perspective is when you're out walking and dictating, you can't go back and dink around with the last sentence. You have to keep moving forward. 
And when you're telling a story and you suddenly stop and go back to change your punctuation or to correct a spelling, it's like you're shifting your creative engine from forward to reverse to forward to reverse. But when you're out walking and dictating, you just have to tell the next sentence and then clean it up. Um, but again, I remind you that I've been doing this for 30 years, so I'm pretty well practiced at it. Um, when you first start out, I mean, what I suggest is start out as like notes to yourself so that they're not required to be complete sentences. They don't have to be, you know, well-organized paragraphs or anything. It's just so that you don't forget all that beautiful dialogue. But, you know, when you're dictating dialogue, you are speaking the way people speak because it's coming out of your mouth. Um, one of my audio narrators, audiobook narrators, um, has told me that my books are some of the easiest books ever to narrate because he never gets a sentence that is impossible to say out loud. Whereas if you're typing, you might end up with um, seven words with the letter M right in a row or, or lispy sounding things that you can't differentiate when you're talking and I tongue twisters and stuff. So, um, you know, that's just, that's just the thing, but it still goes through cleanup when it comes back from the typist, then I have to kind of do a weed whacker through it. And then I polish it some more and go through it a couple more times. So if someone's coming to it brand new, uh, ballparking it, how long do you think it takes before you get an innate sense of a scene, whatever that means for the genre or project you're working on. Uh, the reason the reason I ask is when you're typing on a screen, you can kind of get a sense of how many pages you've covered or, or how many paragraphs are on the page. But if you're if you're just recording it, you don't. So is it a time thing? Is it a feel? H how does that work? Well, first off, I personally am a very strict outliner. So I have my whole book outlined, and I know that chapter one this happens, chapter two this happens, and so when I go out to do my writing, I, I have like, here's my one paragraph that lays out what's in chapter one. And I kind of refer to that, but then I'll just dictate it off the, off the top of my head. And I find that my chapters are maybe 2000 words and they turn out to be maybe 14 minutes typing. I, I mean, dictating, but I, I mean, I talk pretty smoothly. I don't have a lot of ums and long pauses and things in them because I can roll it. But it's something that, you know, it's an individual thing for each person, just sort of like typing is. I mean, how how many minutes does it take you to write a 300-word page? Well, I can write it at a different speed than you can, maybe just because right. we're writers. Right, yeah. Makes sense. Uh, I know that, you know, we're, we're in a time where, Live events and in-person things are a little bit different than they used to be. Uh, what's happening at the summer residency at Western Colorado these days? Well, we just, uh, we're, we should tell people we're recording this back in August. So when you're hearing it, it it's a while ago. Uh, so I, I run the graduate program in publishing at my Colorado University. And I give out master's degrees in publishing. So I teach a group of students and we we, it's all online for the fall semester and the spring semester, and then we're supposed to uh, meet face-to-face -face for two weeks in the beautiful Colorado mountains in July. Well, obviously in 2020, that didn't happen all that well. But, you know, it, it really taught us to kind of uh, put on our best game and really push forward. And we did it all by Zoom, but there's, there are good ways to teach by Zoom and there are really bad ways to teach by Zoom. And I think that we 
we really pulled it off in a, in a pretty spectacular way because um, you mentioned Mark Lefebvre at the beginning. And Mark was going to be our visiting instructor, meaning he would physically come out to Colorado and be there for the whole week to pop in and kind of do peanut gallery comments or guest lectures here and there. Uh, and he still was our virtual guest uh, speaker. But by doing it all with Zoom allowed me to bring in all kinds of guest speakers. I believe I had one every single day for an hour in the afternoon. We had the head of audible.com. We had best-selling authors. We had successful indie publishers. We had a New York editor. We had uh, other authors. We had all kinds of people that could just pop on and they would, they would talk their shtick for an hour. And then um, thanks, thankfully I've got sort of a fidgety personality. So even though we're basically teaching from one to four 30 every afternoon, it's like you do an hour and then you break for 20 minutes, then you do another hour and then you break for 20 minutes. And, and one of the things that I miss so much is that almost every single night we would go out with the students to dinner or I'd got to, there's the local brewery in Gunnison, Colorado. So we just go hang there, but we're still doing, in fact, I just set up another meeting for this coming Saturday where anybody who wants to come, we just sort of have an open, open mic zoom call where we sit there and have a beer and just, shoot the breeze. And, and it kind of brings us together as a tight knit group of students. So the very first year uh, we had nine students, which is the most we're allowed. And then even in the pandemic, when everybody's scrambling and everything's changing, we still got, uh, well, we got 10 students and then two of them deferred. So we've got a full group of eight and then coming in July, 2021, we'll open up again, but it's, I, I love the program. I think it teaches you, uh, no nonsense stuff about publishing. It's fully balanced between traditional publishing and uh, indie publishing because things are things are changing so much. I got to read as fast as I can so that I look smart in front of the students because a lot of them can know as much as I do. So it's um, Western Colorado University and then publishing. If you if you know how to use the Google, you can figure that one out. Do you have a separate track for Colorado microbrews? Not a separate track, but we we study them very carefully. You know, <laughs> well, you know, there's there are different. When I I always put that when I'm talking about my biography that I'm a I'm an aficionado of fine craft brews, and then I talk about how much I love Rush, and then I talk about how much I've uh, climbed the mountains in Colorado because uh, an author bio shouldn't be boring. Saying and he wrote this book, this book, this book, this book, and this book, and you can find him at this website. That's that's not what your bio you should read. You should try to do something interesting and put that in there instead. Totally agree. And I can remember as a kid and growing up in Western Pennsylvania, my dad uh, came came back from the uh, uh, the beer distributor, which is what they had in PA. And he had this brand new uh, beer that he found called Coors. <laughs> and, I, and I remember, it was just so funny. Like you think about what Coors was in the 70s. It was sort of a microbrew, uh, a whole lot different these days. Well, and it was also, it was, if you were in Pennsylvania and I was in Wisconsin, there was sort of a mystique about Coors because it was not allowed to be shipped across the Mississippi right. River because yeah. there was some, it, it wasn't pasteurized to their, there was some legal reason because they used some different process in canning. And so it was like this great white whale for all of us on the Eastern U S going, there's this mythical thing called Coors that nobody's ever tasted. And, 
And I remember my first trip over to the Rockies and I had had to have a course and, and wow, it tasted just like Budweiser or Miller or anything <laughs> else. And that getting completely off our subject, but, but um, there, we are living in quite a golden age for many, many things um, there. I mean, growing up in Wisconsin, which is, you know, it's a great place to grow up, very Ray Bradbury-ish, but it's not like the, the cultural and cur- culinary Mecca for interesting ethnic foods and interesting things. And all of the beer was basically the yellow lager kind of beer. And it all was hams and Schlitz and Miller and Stroh's and, and it all was, you know, pretty much identical. But then sort of this big explosion came with Samuel Adams and Anchor Steam and Sierra Nevada. And, and then microbreweries started appearing all over the place. And about the same time that Starbucks came out and people will knock Starbucks, but Starbucks was the first really good coffee that started showing up all over the place. I mean, you had Folgers and Maxwell House and Farmer Brothers Coffee. It was the only thing you could get anywhere. And it sort of has upped uh, the microbrewery industry has upped the stakes for how good beer tastes and Starbucks has upped the stakes for how good real coffee can taste. So that has nothing to do with your show, but I'm doing my, <laughs> my side bio stuff about something interesting because I'm, I'm very prolific and productive as you might've noticed. And I drink a lot of coffee in the morning and I relaxed with some really good beer in the evening. Yeah. And you're making me really thirsty. So maybe, <laughs> maybe it's a good time for us to kind of pull the conversation towards a close. And uh, I want to ask you a little variation on what you just said. Uh, you said it, it's a golden age for a lot of things right now. Is it a golden age for publishing? Uh, if so, why, you know, why or why or why not, I guess? Well, ever since I was like eight years old and wanted to be a writer, it was always the worst time ever to be a writer. I mean, everybody always said this is the worst time ever to get into it. Well, the thing is, is that if you know what you're doing, you have way more possibilities now than you've ever had if you're a writer or a publisher. Um, it's sort of like, yeah, there are way more beers that you can drink, but you could still get a bad beer if you pick the wrong one. Um, maybe that's stretching the metaphor too much. Uh, there are so many opportunities, but it is harder in the sense that, um, look, most writers just want to write a book and send it somewhere and make a million dollars and then write another book. Well, that isn't, it anymore. You have to, not only do you have, you can't just be a songwriter and have somebody else do your song and you make a lot of money. You have to write your song and then you have to record the song and then you have to go on tour for your song and then you still have to uh, keep doing stuff. It's like that with publishing now, that if you are going to be an indie publisher, which is more and more of a, um, the more obvious way, especially with, uh, and remember, we're talking in October or August right now. So I don't even know what the, what the publishing and book selling world is going to be like, but uh, in July, uh, U.S. bookstores released numbers that their sales were down uh, something like sixty eight percent from the year before, and bookstores were never like Las Vegas casinos printing money. Bookstores never made a lot of money, and publishers never made a lot of money. And now they've just all hit black ice and went spinning all out of control. So I don't know that your normal route of writing a 
big novel manuscript and sending it off to Bantam Books or Simon & Schuster and then having somebody publish it and put it out in all the Barnes & Noble stores or chapter stores, if that's gonna work anymore. So, but on the flip side of it, one of my disadvantages as a small publisher was I couldn't get my books stuck in the window at Barnes & Noble. I couldn't get an end cap display in chapters, but I can play on an equal playing field if I'm publishing my books to Amazon and I've got a good cover and I've got good write-up and I have good keywords and I have all the listing because nobody, I guarantee you, no reader goes to Amazon and looks for the new Dune book and go, gee, I wonder which publisher published this. They just don't. They want to know what the book is. They want to know what the author is. They want to know what the book is about. And they want to know what the cover looks like so that it doesn't seem cheesy or amateurish. So we have a chance now. It's sort of like they they took the, the Super Bowl and made it open to all players. And, you know, if you're willing to do the work and willing to keep uh, abreast of the subject and and keep working, because it's it's never rest on your laurels. It's never, there, I wrote the book, I'm done. So you have chances now, but it's a lot harder. You can't just be a writer. You have to be a writer and a publisher and a proofreader and a marketer and a um, book designer and everything else too. So. Excellent. Is that gonna... inspiring or depressing? I'm not sure which <laughs> one that was, but. I was really kind of torn because I have about a million things I wanted to ask you, but I, I figured you didn't have time for about a five hour podcast. So, well, I mean, that's, that's always the problem. Like, well, what do I talk about in this one? Cause I've always <laughs> got, um, so, well, I just want to do a, a quick plug. You can follow me on Twitter at, 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 and then the word the, and my initials KJA and on Facebook, just look up official Kevin J Anderson and you'll find it. Uh, my own website is wordfire, W-O-R-D-F-I-R-E.com. Uh, and let's see, my brand new, I've got this big epic fantasy trilogy that started out with Spine of the Dragon. And then the second book, Venge War, like Revenge War, uh, published in January 2021. Got a new Dune book out, October 2020. A bunch of comics out. I've got a bunch of my own other books that we're publishing at Wordfire Press, um, still running the whole grad program at for publishing at Western Colorado University. And I enjoy craft beer and I cook for my wife every night. So well, you're like a saint go. for that. <laughs> she does the dishes. That's our division of responsibilities. So there. All right. As a drummer, I got to kick it to Zach first. A little bit of music talk in this one. Uh, what did you think of the interview? Takeaways. Uh, yeah, it was fun. Um, <laughs> you know, it's 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 really cool. Uh, the stuff that he's done with Neil Pert, with Neil Pert, who has uh, unfortunately passed away now. Uh, he passed away when we were to remember. I told you on a Whole Foods about that. We were in California, I think. It was together, and and January I, and I walked up twenty twenty. Yeah, last January, right before COVID hit. Uh, but uh, but that was that's really fascinating. Uh, I, I knew I know Neil's a writer, and I you know I, I'd known that he had done the stuff with Kevin and all that, and so it was really cool to kind of hear him talk about his process. I mean, the the things that Kevin's been able to do. I mean, he's I loved when he was talking about Dune, and he's he he's I just reached out to to Brian and was like, hey, are you going to uh do you know who's going to finish these last couple of books or 
whatever it is. And then, I mean, how many books have they written together now? I mean, it's dozens in that Dune series since. So he got to do Star Wars. I mean, the guy's just done some really, really neat things. It's It sounds like something J.D. Barker would do, right? Just cold email someone. <laughs> you know, honestly, like, that was the first thing that jumped out at me. You know, like, he's got all these relationships and just, you know, how did he go about, you know, starting those? You know, with, with Rush, he sent them a book. You know, he dedicated a book to him. He sent it to him. Um, you know, George Lucas's company saw, you know, one of his books that he had written and reached out to him. And But he's, he's you know, aggressively going out there and just, you know, waving his hand in the air saying, hey, pick me, pick me. Um, which is what you need to do, you know, in this industry, because there's a lot of those projects out there and people don't even, you know, like in, in the case of Dune, like, you know, nobody may have been looking for that at the at the time, but he, he saw an opportunity there and, and, you know, he turned that into a franchise all his own. So kudos for that. And that's definitely something that, you know, any author out there that, that wants to break into the this world, um, particularly with tie-in stuff, things like that, that's a, that's a great way to do it. I mean, there's so many TV shows that don't have novelizations and I can guarantee, you know, a, a network would be all over that if you volunteer. Um, and people just don't do it not not often enough it ties in too to something that Hugh Howie said on his first appearance on our show about fan fiction and and about um, a a great way to establish your voice and to get uh, your writing chops under you is to write fan fiction and it and it seems like you know the the tie-ins could be a great bridge um, or the or the fan fiction could be a bridge to the tie-in yeah, absolutely. Like I, back in the day, I wrote in the the Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, I, I wrote a couple tie-in novels to that, and, and you know the way that works is they you know once they they agree to to go with whatever concept you put out there, either they give you an, an idea of what the book is supposed to be about, or you present it, or, or whatever. But you know all the parties have to sign off on it. Um, in the case of Buffy, then I was given a, a Bible, which basically explains you know the characters, um, any information that you know, any back history, you know, because that that's you know there's obviously a lot of canon there in that particular storyline. Um, they give all that to you. So as an author you know you're basically stepping in you're writing a story you've got your outline or your, your rough idea of what it's about all your characters already exist you know so you can sit back and you can watch the tv shows and you know exactly what buffy the vampire slayer is like or those particular characters or the characters from dune you know you can literally watch them on the screen um and it, that's you know I, I think in a lot of ways where i learned how to create characters because i was you know develop them on you know in my mind real people i mean they're obviously actors and actresses but you know they're they're presenting them in a way where they're real and you just have to carry that over to the book and it's a great, great learning tool. I'm uh, to shift the conversation a little bit too. I, I know Jay. I, I know he does this, but I'm curious, JD. Uh, do you do any dictation? Because I, I love. Uh, I've heard Kevin talk about that before, and I, I loved him talking about dictation here. I tried. Um, I'm I'm really self conscious about walking down the street and people seeing me talking to myself. Um, <laughs> You know, so it's it's hard. Like he's in the mountains; he's all by himself. You know, it's probably just him and his dog and a bottle of water, and they're just wandering around. So that that to me seems a little bit easier. I'm I'm on an island where I run into maybe five, ten, twenty people that I know. You know, during my little five mile walk, um, you know, and people look at you funny if you're if you're talking to yourself. So if you're holding up your phone and you're talking into your phone, like that kind of helps. Um, the closest I do to it is I dictate into my watch. Um, I've got a record app on there that you know I, I just hit a button, I can record whatever you know whatever I want to put on there and it automatically transfers it into text and puts it on my Mac and makes it available for me later. So I, I do that quite a bit. Um, and, and it, for dialogue in particular, it's, it's huge. And he brought up the, the reasons why, because, you know, anything you say out loud is going to translate, you know, first it's going to sound real. It's going to sound like real dialogue, but it, you know, makes it that much easier for the narrator. Um, so that works on so many different levels. Um, but you know, he kind of did it, you know, the way he mentioned it was kind of fascinating to me because he does this a little different, I think, than, you know, the way I would probably 
probably do it. Like he starts his walk off and he's, he's got, you know, like the paragraph that that particular chapter is about in his mind. And then he literally just starts writing that book by, by dictating it. So like, he's already got that, you know, that piece together. And, and typically what I dictate is little snippets, you know, like, Oh, I think this needs to happen, you know, two thirds of the way through the book. So I'll record it really quick and then I'll, I'll drop it into, you know, my simple note document, which is where all these go later. Uh, so I kind of piece my, you know, my partial outline together based on that, but I, I've never tried writing a full chapter that way. And I'm sure it's you know, probably once you get the practice behind you, it's probably an incredibly you know easy way to get it done. Um, but it takes a lot of practice. Yeah, I mean, once you get it, though, that's I use dictation some of how he does. So I'll go on a walk and either be in the middle of a chapter or starting a chapter, and I'll kind of look at my notes for that chapter beforehand, my outline or whatever, and then I'll just start type, like speaking the chapter. Um, and I and I get a lot done. I, I did it this morning. I went on my walk, and like the last half of my walk, I ended up getting like 800 words in or something um, before I even sat down to start typing for the day. And it definitely helps with dialogue. Uh, it, it makes it makes a really big difference there. I'll also say, I, I can relate to what you're saying about looking weird. I had that same thing until I heard Chris Fox say that he used to get on, like when he would ride the train to work when he had a full time yeah. job, he would be on the train dictating and talking about like shooting aliens and stuff. So after that, <laughs> I was like, okay. So I've done it like at the gym on the treadmill and stuff like that. Sat there talking about killing zombies, and I'm just like whatever most people there are just focused on themselves anyway so if they hear me they can just think i'm weird i mean look at me i look weird anyway so well if any if anybody missed it he's got a book out there kevin does um called on being a dictator where he actually goes into That's this a and great i'm gonna title too, uh, yeah i'm gonna check that out for sure and I, ironically it doesn't look like it's available in audio like it's only available in print <laughs> <laughs> but I, i'm gonna get it anyway well uh, uh zach you've been teasing a little a little KJA connection uh, to it. You haven't even told us, so I think don't say it like that. I just had a story I wanted to tell. All right, it's not, I'm not teasing anything. You were teasing no, us. I was y'all a little yeah. bit, yeah. So no, I just uh, it, it was funny. It was it was cool having him on. So I've never met Kevin, um, but when I first moved to Nashville in 2007, I worked at a music store um, when I first moved here. And while I was there, I made I made a friend who I still talk to occasionally to this day. Uh, we don't talk a lot, but his name's Chris Brown, and uh, he's a phenomenal guitar player. I don't think he really plays much anymore, um, but he had a band called Ghost Circus and was kind of – he was almost like the J.D. Barker of prog rock. Like, he always was just kind of there, even if you weren't sure he was supposed to be or not. Um, but he was friends with Kevin and still is friend. I believe he's still friends with Kevin this day, uh, and – had kind of told me about him and, and Chris actually worked on an album uh, that was a direct tie in to a book that Kevin wrote uh, called the edge of the world, which is the first book in his Terra incognita series. And it had like, from what I remember, it had some pretty big prog rock superstars on it. I mean, it had like James Labrie, the singer from dream theater. Uh, I mean, se several pretty big heavy hitters in that genre. My buddy Chris played guitar on a couple tracks and, uh, and I, I believe mixed most of the record, I think. Um, so around that same, after I left that job, not too long after, I, I, I moved to the company that I was up, I was at until I left my job. And I was, when I first was there, I was a traveling sales rep and I got the itch to like read a book and I hadn't read a book in forever and walked into a bookstore to find something to read while I was on the road, like flying stuff. And I picked up the edge of the world because of that, uh, that 
connection I had to Chris and everything, I was like, well, I'm going to check this out because I've been listening to the album. I might as well read the book. Um, and that book was really uh, what kicked off me getting really back into reading as an adult. <laughs> and it's probably a huge reason why I'm sitting here right now. Wow. Um, so, yeah. So that's my connection to Kevin. And it was really kind of like a full circle thing because that hap- this all happened, gosh, 12, 13 years ago now. Um, so, but yeah, it was, that was kind of the first book I read and like after in a long time and really kicked off me wanting to read and get me back into riot. And here I am. So, yeah. So thank you, Kevin. (laughs) And I'm sure Chris says, Hey, so (laughs) one more thing that just kind of jumped out at me, um, that I think a lot of people gloss over is the author bio thing. Um, Oh, I love that. Yeah. 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 Make the bio about, you know, interesting facts about you. Um, and I'm totally guilty of what he said. Like if you read my bio, like it, it mentions a couple books that I've written and, you know, I'm basically listing accomplishments there that the, you know, the reader most likely doesn't care about, you know, it's cool stuff for me, but they probably don't care. Um, or they already know. So they're not really learning anything new about me. Um, so I like the fact that he, he actually, you know, dwells into a little bit about himself and, you know, cause it is a bio. Um, so yeah, I'm going to revisit mine and just kind of keep that in mind and see if I can do a little, little rewrite on it. Yeah. Kevin's a great guy. I mean, he does a lot for the writing community. He's, he's a teacher and he, he's really trying to get young people involved. So it was really an honor and a pleasure to talk to him and, uh, and, and really enjoyed that. So it was, it was great having him on the show. So who do we got next week, JD? Next week, we've got a, a friend of mine, Eric Rickstad. Um, I've known him for, I'm not even sure how long, four or five years or so now. Um, he was one of the first New York Times um, bestsellers to actually give me a blurb on one of my books. Um, just a really cool guy, very generous, and he lives up fairly close to me. He's, um, you know, He comes down my way every once in a while with family, and one of these days we're all going to hang out. Um, but he's gone through a lot of changes lately. Um, you know, he's a New York Times bestseller, but you know, he decided it was time for a new agent, time for a new publisher, and he kind of re- revamped his his career. Um, he's got a new book coming out. Um, it's called I I am not who you think I am. It releases at the end of the year um, with a brand new publisher, brand new agent, um, and he's he's with um, Shane Salerno, which is the same agent we had talked about before that uh, reps T.J. Newman. Um, he was one of the writers on Independence Day, the movie. Um, a lot of very strong Hollywood ties with this guy, and he's, he's definitely one of the, the bigger agents out there. So Eric is at a very interesting time in his career, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to just hearing, you know, what's you know, spurred those particular changes on um, and, and how he feels, you know, now that he's got those changes in the rear view and he's, you know, got a new book coming out. So it's going to be a, a fascinating conversation for sure. Excellent. Well, to our listeners, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and grab the free revision masterclass where you can see the storytelling process from beginning to end. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.